Well, this, this series through First Peter has this theme of exiles weaved throughout it. And we're calling this whole series Living in Exile because that's what we are. We're exiles living here in a world that, that is opposed to us, that is very different to us and strange to us. But, but with this exile is, is a humility that we experience. We are, we are humbled in this exile as people revile us and and hate us, and we might be tempted to think that our exile is a lot like the exile that Israel experienced as well in the Old Testament. And to be sure, there are similarities, but the similarities are not all the same. You see, for Israel, when they were exiled, they were humbled to a degree that we are not. When they were exiled, they were removed from their home, stripped of their identity as God's people, especially when the temple was destroyed. Understand what the temple would have been for God's people. The temple was the center of their society and their life and their identity as God's people. And the temple was that symbol for them of of being God's people where he dwelt in their midst. And so the ultimate humiliation then for, for Israel would have been the destruction of the temple by Babylon. And they're just, they're Removal from the land was not just a removal from their home, but ultimately it, it meant being cut off from the presence of God. Much like Adam and Eve, when they were cast out of the garden, they too were removed from that special presence of God there in Eden. But we need to understand this as exiles here in the world today. We do not have this limited access to God. We have not been rejected by God. But we have this special access to God that is even greater than what Israel had through the temple. For God has built a new temple, and that's what our text is about this morning. But we we come to this kind of awkward point in Peter this morning. It's an abrupt transition from what came before it. So I want to try to help us understand what Peter's doing here so that we can understand where this text fits in with what came before. It's awkward for a few reasons. First of all, the imagery that Peter uses quickly shifts. We've been talking about how we are brought into new birth through this imperishable seed, the seed of the word. And not only that, but last week Tate preached about how the word is also the milk that that brings us into maturity so that we are strengthened and nourished as infants. But now there's a sudden shift. It's not about the the seed of the word or the milk of the word, but now it's this temple language about about a foundation, a cornerstone, and bricks being built upon that cornerstone with a new priesthood and and sacrifices being made that are pleasing to God. Very different from this this picture of seed and and milk. But now it's also different also because, because the structure so far, we've been talking about the gospel truths that lead to gospel behaviors through the commands that we are going through there over the last few weeks, but now there's no new command here. So there's a, there's a whole new section that we're being introduced here. And so what is Peter doing? Well, I think we can find help at least first by trying to connect the imagery of that pure spiritual milk that we are to long for to that of what's happening now here as we come to Christ, as we come to this living stone. I think what Peter's trying to show us here is the natural consequence of those who have, in fact, tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because if you have, in fact, tasted and seen what is good, or if you have ever had any good experience of perhaps putting a a sweet popsicle in your mouth on a hot summer day, you're going to want to go back again for it, right? So too, in the same sense, if we have tasted and seen that God is good, if we long for this milk, we are going to come to Christ. And that is exactly what the text says, as we come to him. So there's the connection. And, and what he's painting here now is the longing of Israel who longed to be near to the presence of God, especially through the temple. We see this all over throughout the Old Testament. This is a theme where God's people are constantly yearning to be near God, especially within his house. So that's the connection of the imagery. It's a very sudden shift of images, and yet I think we can see how it fits as we long for this pure spiritual milk. What we're longing for is God himself, his presence. And while he's finished giving his commands, at least for now, the commands that he's given us up to this point where how we relate to God 
and how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, now he brings these two concepts together, showing us of the relationship we have with Christ as we are joined to him in union with him as the cornerstone and we being the bricks built upon it. But not just that, but now we also have this special bond with one another as we are built up into this new spiritual house, every individual being a single brick in the whole. So I think that's the connection Peter is trying to show us. And so with this in mind, let's, let's hear our text. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That spiritual house there is, is a temple. Not just a house like we think of a house. It's a temple. That's the language that the Old Testament would often use about the temple. It was, it was a, the house for God. And so we are being built up in a, into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here's, here's what I think Peter's trying to show us. God is building a new temple for exiles. Unlike the the exile that Israel experienced in the Old Testament where they were cut off from the presence of God, when they were removed from the land and when the temple was destroyed, our exile is very different because now there is a temple for us here in our exile. And we're able to access God through this temple. So let's look at verse 4 now. Peter says, As you come to him, as Jesus Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Just these few words here in the beginning. As you come to him, let's not pass by it too quickly because they're significant. The fact that we can even come near to God should amaze us. This is astounding. We know this from experience that even those who are in sin tremble to come near to God because their conscience condemns them. There is something very unsettling for those who are in the world, even those who deny God altogether, to still come near to those who are holy, to those who have the aroma of Christ because they know they stand condemned. So they do not want to draw near to God, but for us, who are in Christ, we have tasted and seen that he is good. And so we come to him. But this isn't just something that we experience. It is something we experience to be sure. But the scriptures testify to the very same thing of how difficult it was for God's people to actually draw near to God in the Old Testament. Take the end of Exodus for one example. Exodus is a a wonderful book. After God delivers his people from slavery, They meet with him there at Mount Sinai and there God gives them the Ten Commandments, but it also gives them instructions for how to build the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle would have been the tent that Israel would build there in the wilderness where God would dwell in their midst as they traveled throughout the wilderness. So this is is the temple essentially, but it's the temple in the wilderness It's called the tabernacle. So as they build the tabernacle by the very end of Exodus, it's completed, and Exodus closes with these odd words. Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So finally, Israel has built the tabernacle. Finally, God is there in their midst, and yet, there's still this separation. Kind of like Adam and Eve there at the garden once again. There's a separation from being near into the presence of God as even Moses is unable to enter into the tabernacle when the glory of God fills the tabernacle. And so the transition to Leviticus makes a lot of sense. That book of Leviticus, it's, it's a tricky text for most modern readers because it's full of all kinds of rules and regulations for how Israel was to make sacrifices before God and what made a person clean and unclean so as to draw near to God or be on the outskirts of Israel. But immediately we see, even from this closing of Exodus, why we have the book of Leviticus, or why Israel at least had the, very, the book of Leviticus. It was, it was for the priest of Israel to give God's people instruction for how they were to draw near to God, how they were to be cleansed ritually, 
how they were to, to worship and what kind of offerings and sacrifices they were to make. And so the book of Leviticus, we get that, that, that book title because it's given so much so to the Levites, the, those, those priests. These were the priests of Israel, the Levites, who were God's representative to the rest of the nation. And these Levites, they were the ones who had special access to God. They were, the, they were the keepers of the tabernacle and the temple later on. And then there was the high priest, of course, the one man who was able to draw near into the Holy of Holies just once a year. And this was a dangerous work for the high priest. And this is why throughout the Bible, people are terrified at the sight of God. Because to come near to God is a dangerous thing. Because he is holy and we are not. And so when Isaiah had the vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we could go through dozens of other examples where the same experience is expressed by people, even in the New Testament, when they see the living God. They are terrified. They are undone because he is holy and we are not. And yet Peter says, as you come to him, brothers and sisters, we have this access to the living God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Hold that thought for a minute. We'll come back to these words towards the end. But as we come to him, a living stone who in the sight of God is chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Understand what Peter's showing us here. God is building a new temple, and this new temple is built upon Christ. He's the one who we come near. He's the one who we come to. He is the, the cornerstone that we're going to see in a few verses, who is chosen and precious by God, but who is rejected by men. He is the one who we come to. And so this, this temple that God is building is built upon his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And so we have access then to the Lord's presence because of Jesus, this new temple. In the book of Psalms, we have a collection of Psalms called the, the Songs of Ascent. And they were sung by the pilgrims of Israel who traveled to Jerusalem for one of their three annual feasts. And they're called these songs of ascent because Jerusalem, understand, was built upon Mount Zion. And so whether you were coming to Jerusalem from the north or the south or the east or the west, no matter where you were coming to Jerusalem from, you were ascending the hill. So whenever you were drawing near to the temple, whenever you were drawing then near to God, you were going upwards. You were ascending but why did Israel ascend this hill of Jerusalem? It was to come near to God. Jeremiah 31, 6. Arise and let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. And yet for us, through Christ, this new cornerstone, this new foundation for this new temple, we no longer have to go to God through a temple. We no longer have to travel to Jerusalem but we come to God through Jesus Christ, for he dwelt among us. That's that word in John when he says he dwelt among us. Quite literally, he tabernacled among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And now, today, no one comes to the Father except through him. And so understand then what it means for Christ to be the cornerstone of this new temple. This is after all what Peter draws from as he quotes Isaiah First stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. What is this cornerstone? This cornerstone is the first brick that would be laid down for the building of any building. It was the, the foundation. And every other brick would find its relation in the building as it was constructed according to where that stone was built. That cornerstone had two adjacent walls coming out from it. And so we see this is the beginning of the architect's plan. Christ, the foundation, the cornerstone of the new temple. And so what it means for Christ then to be the cornerstone is it means that we lean upon him. 
and him alone as the foundation of our life. What it means for Christ to be the cornerstone means he is the model that orchestrates the, the whole rest of the temple and everything that is built upon him must be built according to him. We'll come back to this in a bit, but for now, let's continue. Look at verse four again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Christ is the living stone, but now we too are living stones who are being built upon him. So understand what this means. Peter's showing us the, the construction of this new temple is comprised of Christians. It is built up with you and me. We are the temple of God. Living stones who find our life when we come to Christ. He, after all, is the living stone. And stones aren't living, not ordinarily, but when stones come into contact with Christ, we find new life insofar as we come to him and are built upon him. So when God's people once traveled to a temple to draw near to God, now that we are connected to Christ, now Christ dwells in us. God takes residence up in us us in a very special way, in the way that he once took up residence in the temple in a very special way. God is omnipresent. We know that. He is in all places at all times. Nothing limits him in that sense. And yet, in a very special sense, God is here with us, dwelling with us. And so now as we come to Christ, we are being built up into this new temple, but understand, it is a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, not a physical temple. We don't have holy places. We don't have holy objects. We are not being built up into a physical house, some human pyramid or something like that. Verse 5 says, you are being built up as a spiritual house. And so that's why we're able to gather here and now to worship God in what is simply a renovated bingo hall. Not because the building is holy, but because God takes up residence in his people by faith. As Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so that's why we don't even call this room a sanctuary. Because this room is not special necessarily just because it's the room with four walls and a platform and all the things like this. We can worship here. We can worship across the way. We can worship in the parking lot. We can worship in our homes. We have access to God wherever two or three are gathered. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so even here and now, the Spirit of Christ is with us. Understand the implications for this are massive. Paul in Philippians said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So Paul's not with them. Paul is not omnipresent. Paul is not with us. But there is one who is. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Understand the nearness of God there. God is in you, working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Christian, as you begin to have new appetites, new spiritual appetites, as you long for the, the pure spiritual milk of the word, it is because God is with you. He is in you. He has taken residence in you, and he is working in you to produce all new fruit that are pleasing to him. Understand what it means then for God to be in you and for us to be his temple. Just as the temple was to be holy and set apart, so too we are to be holy and set apart, for God dwells in us. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And here he's talking to the congregation, not just individuals, but you're all body, the whole Church, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's why Peter said earlier just as well, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The implications, though, are not just how we 
are moral in and of ourselves, but the implications of being built up in this temple also has huge ramifications for how we treat one another. Understand the picture that Peter is painting here is not individual temples, but one new temple that is comprised of all of God's people as they are connected to the one stone. As there is one stone, so there is one, one cornerstone that is, there is one temple. And since we are all connected to Christ through our union with him, so too we are connected to one another. And so when we are called to love one another earnestly, we are loving one another as we love ourselves, as we are connected then to one another. But Peter stretches the imagery even further. Listen again to verse five. You yourselves are being are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house. So there you're the stones, but not only that, but now you're also the priests, the priesthood who occupy the temple and serve within the temple. You are also to be a holy priesthood, he says. And so the new temple priests are common Christians. Okay, we're not, we're not just the building, but we're, we're the priests as well. Understand what the priest is. The priest was the mediator between God and man. And in Israel, the priest was just those who were the Levites and, and even the special selection of those who were Levites. And so it's worth clarifying even now that a pastor is not a priest. They are not one and the same. And depending on some of our backgrounds, some of you may have once called the man up front the priest, but I am not a priest. A pastor, an elder, an overseer, you might call me all kinds of things, but, but not a priest, at least not in any way that you're not. We are all priests, and in that I am a priest alongside you, but I am not a priest separate from you. It can be kind of awkward sometimes to be a pastor because sometimes people think I'm, I'm something special, something different, and it can be a little bit awkward. There's all kinds of ways in which this is difficult. Sometimes people just want nothing to do with me as soon as they find out I'm a, I'm a pastor, but that's not unique to me. As soon as they find out you're a Christian, the same people will say and treat you the same way. But what becomes awkward is when people treat me like I have special access to God, especially when those people are other Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ. But pastors are not priests. There are no special classes of Christian. There are plenty of variety amongst us, as God has certainly given the church many different people with many different gifts. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 talks about apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all given to equip the saints for the working of ministry. But understand, nowhere in there is there a priest, because I am not the priest, and no other individual is the priest other than the entire body of Christ together. We are all priests. And Catholics don't seem to get this because Catholics make their confessions to priests and they even pray to the Virgin Mary thinking they're humbling themselves instead of going directly to God through Christ when in fact in doing so, they are dishonoring God because we have one high priest and that is Jesus Christ, Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. There's the same invitation to come. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Understand this, Christian, you have direct access to your God through Christ, you are a priest. And you know what a priest does? A priest is there to offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel. And so we see the imagery drawn even further one last time now in verse five. You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And here's the purpose to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what priests are for. And this is what God has saved us for just as well, so that we might please him with sacrifices that are given to him. So here's the last thing I want us to see on this point. The new temple sacrifices are acceptable through Christ. So you have a new temple built on a new foundation, which is Christ. 
built up with Christians, but then the Christians who are the bricks are also the priests, and the priests then also offer sacrifices to God that are acceptable to God. And yet some of us would say, I thought sacrifices were done away with. Well, it depends on what you mean. If you mean animal sacrifices, absolutely. Again, Hebrews helps us a lot. Hebrews 10 says, And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. That is the final sacrifice. And so he continues, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemy should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So understand this. Christ, he is the final sacrifice, the final sacrifice of blood that is ever made to God. And so we do not sacrifice animals to the Lord anymore, and yet Peter seems to suggest that we do make sacrifices. And so what are the sacrifices that Peter has in mind? What are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God? Well, it starts here. It's repentance, true repentance for sin. Paul said, or not Paul, excuse me, David said it this way in, in Psalm 51. For you will do not, not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So, so the sacrifices here are a repentance, sorrow for sin that causes us to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Furthermore, the sacrifices that are pleasing to God are our obedience. We see in 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel said, Had not the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to, and to listen than the fat of rams. Even in the New Testament, we see this. Sacrifices that are pleasing to God, according to Paul in Romans 12, is a life that is conformed to the will of God. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices that God please, is pleased by is, is the praise that comes from our lips, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And again, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's all kinds of ways in which we offer sacrifices to God. That's what we're here to do even now as we worship him in praise, in confession, and in conforming our minds to the, to the will of God, to know what is good and right and perfect. All these are pleasing to God. And yet, how is it possible for any of these things to be acceptable to a perfect and holy God? Even on my best days, my praise is not sincere enough. My love for him is not earnest enough. My repentance is not sincere enough and lowly enough. And my obedience is never, ever perfect. So how can these things be acceptable to God? when it is mingled with sin. Look again at 1 Peter 2, 5. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ takes our sacrifices and through him and only through him are they ever pleasing to God. That's why, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So all of these things this new temple built on a new foundation with bricks built upon it, this new priesthood with new sacrifices, this has massive implications for each and every one of us. And yet, if you're like me, you might be suspicious of new things. You see, very often things are celebrated, new things that is, they're celebrated very quickly only for time to pass, and then and all of a sudden you find out, you know, that new thing was actually terrible. 
Take, for example, in the 1800s, the new material that was widely used as it became readily available. It was widely used for building materials, and it was popular for a number of reasons. It, it was recently found in abundance. It was low cost. It was durable, and it was even fire resistant. All good things when it comes to building materials, but some things are too good to be true. And this cheap, durable substance, you know what it was? Asbestos. Found out to be incredibly deadly when inhaled. So understand, not all new things are good. And this is especially true when it comes to new things that, that are introduced into the church for how we are to relate to God. There are, we're living in a day and age where, where we love new fads. Things are changing quicker now than ever. And this, unfortunately, is true even within the church. I wonder how many books have been sold off of Christian bookstore shelves all because of some new truth that gets introduced when in fact that new truth is simply an old heresy that was put to death years ago. And yes, for some reason, someone thought it good to resurrect that dead heresy. When someone shares this new revelation with you, understand we should be very slow to receive it. Remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they got creative in their offerings that were given to the Lord again in Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Understand what Peter's saying here. This new temple with new bricks, with new priests and new sacrifices. It sounds dangerous if you learn about Nadab and Abihu and the new fire they put before the Lord. Let me clarify something, though. Though I am suspicious, and we should all be suspicious of new truths that get introduced into the church, uh, we, we shouldn't necessarily be suspicious about new songs. This becomes very controversial. But new songs are good. But new songs are only good only in so, as far as they are filled with the old, timeless truths that are contained in Scripture. There are some wonderful new songs that we're singing. So when I talk about being suspicious of old things, let's not then say, well, Josh talked about us stop singing new songs in church. It's not what, what the application I'm trying to draw here. I, I like new songs. I like old songs too. But understand, even the old songs that we sing were once new songs. Amazing Grace, A Mighty Fortress, wonderful songs. But you know, the apostles were not singing them. They were once new songs, and yet they are now old songs that we continue to sing. Why? Because they, they recount the same old, timeless truths that never wear out. They declare the solid and unchanging truths of God. And just as our God is immutable and unchanging, so we sing these timeless truths time and time again. But here, back to the point here, Peter's suggesting something new a new temple with new priests and new sacrifices. How can we be certain that Peter isn't wrong? Now, I must say I'm hesitant in even asking this question because Peter, after all, he's an apostle. He's the authoritative messenger of God, writing God-breathed scripture. So I'm very hesitant to even question Peter here and now. But let's consider the question nonetheless. How can we be certain that Peter isn't causing us to stumble? How can we be sure that Peter isn't leading us away from the truth? Well, I'll tell you, we can trust him for the very same reasons that the Bereans were able to trust Paul. Acts 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So understand, these are Jews who love the scripture and these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. So even the Apostle Paul, as it turns out, was, was tested by scripture by the Bereans, and they're called noble for doing so. And Peter has done the work for us already by showing us what the foundation is for what he's saying. All this stuff about a new temple and the new priests and the new sacrifices isn't new at all. Listen to him in verse 6. 
He says, for it stands in Scripture. That word for, he's, he's laying the groundwork for everything that he has just said about this new temple. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so what follows in verses 6 through 8 is the ground for Peter's claim in verses 4 and 5. And the ground here is not his invention. This is not Peter or the apostles' imagination, but it is God's definitive plan that was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures before Jesus even walked the earth. And so when Peter says, for it stands in scripture, he is demonstrating this. The new temple was God's old plan. So it's new in a sense, but all at the same time, this was never God's plan B. This was always his original plan for how God and man would be reconciled to one another. It was not going to be through temples or tabernacles or the blood of bulls, but through Jesus Christ. Understand this, in Ezra 3, we read about a new temple that was built in Israel after their exile. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon. And so when they returned from exile, the new temple was built, and this new temple was received with mixed emotions. Listen to Ezra 3. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that's the first temple, Solomon's temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. This new temple in Israel, the second temple, had these mixed reactions when it was received, when it was laid, when it was being built. Some wept and others rejoiced. So too we find the very same thing with the new temple that Paul, or Peter, excuse me, is, is showing us here. This temple, which is being built upon the foundation of Christ, is received with mixed reactions. Peter has already touched upon it in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Understand, this coming to him in faith is a receiving of Christ. It is agreeing with what God says, that he is, in fact, precious, his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And so as we come to him, we are, we are accepting him for all that he is, and yet not all accept him. Men reject him. They crucify him. They spit in his face and they mock him. And others just simply dismiss him. And so now Peter expands upon this in verses 6 through 8. For it stands in scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter is showing here from the Old Testament scriptures some profound realities again. Some of the realities that we've already touched upon. But before we unpack these realities more, let's consider the following question. Why does Peter quote these three texts from the Old Testament here and now? And furthermore, why not just stop about the honor for those who believe? Why continue and talk about the humiliation of those who reject Jesus? I can't be sure. You'll have to test this for yourself, but I think it has a lot to do with the position of who he's writing to again. Remember how I started. He's writing to exiles. He's writing to people who are strangers here in a land, who are facing persecution and suffering. They are being put to shame by society, and likely some might even be, be, be being put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And moreover, all of this is, is not because they've seen Jesus Christ, at least not that we can tell, but they're following the instructions that they've received from this ragtag group of apostles who are working over and against the giants of Judaism who have rejected Christ. So Peter now, he brings up this new temple with new priests and he founds this on the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that even those priests, those giants in, of Judaism would have would have agreed with and he's showing this their teaching is not strange their teaching is the very teaching that god has given them through the scriptures long ago 
And so he's comforting these people to say, trust in him. Build your life upon him. No matter what the world says, no matter what opposition you might be coming against, build your life upon him even when the priests of Israel tell you not to. And by priests of Israel, I'm not talking about the new priests. I'm talking about the old priests. You see, we're in a similar position today. As the Christian faith is opposed more and more by the world, we are in a position where we might be tempted to abandon the faith. You see, it wasn't long ago, even for us, many of us in the room, where we remember a day when to be an American was almost synonymous with being a Christian. Or at least most Americans would call themselves Christians, even if, in fact, their, their faith was not sincere. But this is far from where we're at today. To follow Jesus today means to go directly against the currents of our culture. And so we know by experience the pressures of following Jesus. We know the shame of being rejected by men for the sake of Christ. And with the opinions of men being against us, some of us may be tempted to cave to popular opinion. Certainly this must have been true for Paul's, or Peter's, excuse me, audience. And so to combat this temptation, Peter, he places two solid rocks under each foot so that his readers and us as well can stand firm against the turbulence of the world that is opposed to Christ. So here's the first rock he puts under our feet. He says that those who come to Christ in faith will not be put to shame. Look at our text again, verses 6 and 7. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. He says here, This new temple built upon Christ was God's plan. He is the architect of the temple. He is the one who has chosen this precious stone and laid it in Zion for the entire temple to be built up upon it. And so if you believe in him, he says, you will not be put to shame. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have no reason to be ashamed for they will receive honor from God. Because God chose his son to be the foundation of this new temple. And all of us who are united to Christ share in the blessings of Christ as he is in fact the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So much so that when they rejected him and put him to death, God raised him from the grave on the third day. So too, Christian, you will not be put to shame. Paul was confident of this when he wrote to the Philippians. He said, yes, and I will rejoice. Here he is in prison, nearing what seems to be his end, perhaps. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation that, and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Understand this, Christian. You can have the same confidence as Paul. You will not be put to shame, even if it means you are put to death or if you're simply hated by your neighbor for the sake of Christ. You will not be put to shame. You see, the world hates Christ and the world will hate Christ or hate you for loving Christ. But understand this, God loves his son and he loves those who love his son as well and who are connected to him through faith. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. 
That's the first stone that Peter puts under your feet in the face of this persecution that you might know that you will not be put to shame. So come to Christ, come to him, the living stone, and you will not regret it. And here's the second rock for your footing. Look at verses seven and eight. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Peter adds this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I have underlined here this last phrase because it's where I want us to focus for just a moment. This stumbling that happens is the opposite of being honored. It is to be put to shame. If upon walking up on the platform today I were to trip and fall on my face, it would be humiliating and so it will be for those who reject christ this cornerstone the stone that they rejected will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they will stumble and they will be put to shame but peter adds this detail in verse 8 he says they they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do So they disobeyed the word. We've seen already this disobedience to the word already, so we won't spend much time on it. It simply means that they do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have rejected the word of the gospel. And Peter says that they do so because they were destined to do so. Now I realize here I am way over time, and I, I realize this raises a lot of questions for some of us. Why does God destine his enemies to disobey the word? Why does God plan for some to stumble over Christ? Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the questions could continue, but such questions are mysteries that we could never fully comprehend. And so for today, may it simply suffice for us to, to agree with what the scriptures say. Romans 9, 15 and 16 The Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. While we might not be able to fully understand why God destines some for destruction, for shame, for stumbling over the stone and others to receive Christ by faith. While we might not understand this, I think there is great comfort in knowing this, that while the world opposes Christ, it is not because Christ has lost control. It is not because God is not sovereign. Understand, even the rejection of Christ was done according to the plan of God. Let me point out one last detail from from this text again. Verse 6 Peter says, now quoting again from Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. I've already pointed out that this is God's plan. He is the one who designed the temple. He is the architect of the new temple with Christ as the foundation. But this word, I am laying, is the same word that we see here at the very end of verse 8. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. It's not the same word in English. It's the same word in Greek. We wouldn't be able to see it, and it would be kind of strange if it says that he was laying them for destruction. It wouldn't make the same amount of sense, but we could see the plan of God to build the temple is also the same planner who causes them to reject the cornerstone. He is the architect of the temple, but not only this, he is the architect of over human hearts, even the hearts of those who hate Christ. So consider what a comfort this would bring to Christians who suffer for Christ's sake. To know that God is seated on the throne. To know that he is in control and sovereign over everything. And even the things that happen to them do not happen by mistake. And so we can have this confidence, even if it means we die because people hate us for the sake of Christ we will not be put to shame for he is sovereign and in control. And so in conclusion, we only have two options when it comes to this stone. 
One stone with two results. We will either come to Jesus Christ in faith, which will result in our honor, or we will be offended by Jesus and reject him, which will result in our stumbling and our destruction. Understand here for Peter, he shows very clearly that there is no neutral ground. To remain indifferent towards Christ is, in fact, to reject him. If you do not come to Jesus in faith, if your life is not built upon him, if you do not rest on the finished work of the cross for your forgiveness of your sins, if he is not for you chosen and precious as he truly is, as the Father himself has declared him to be, if Christ is not everything to you, and then there is no benefit to him, no benefit to you, excuse me, from him. He is simply the stumbling block that you will be humiliated by in the end. So I have three exhortations. Believers, Christians who believe in Christ, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Men may mock you for it. Men may ridicule you for it. Men may reject you, but understand, if you are rejected by men, you are rejected with your Savior. So do not be ashamed of Christ, for he is chosen and precious to God. To the unbeliever, know this, if you continue to reject Christ, thinking that you have maintained your pride, as opposed to humbling yourself before your creator whom you have sinned against, if you do not humble yourself before him, you will be humbled in the last day far worse than you would be if you would simply repent and turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And for each of us, whether you are a believer or not. Let us come to Christ in faith, for he will not let us be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your word that is true and trustworthy, that you have promised us that you will not put us to shame. And so in, until we see you face to face, Lord, would you strengthen our faith, cause us to trust in Christ more and more. Let us not fear man. What can men do to us? Let us fear you and trust you and love you as you are truly lovely. Let us taste and see that you are good. And Lord, in that I pray that as we repent, as we come to